0: The Loved Dead by C. M. Eddy Jr. and H. P. Lovecraft. It is midnight. Before dawn, they will find me and take me to a black cell where I shall languish interminably, while insatiable desires gnaw at my vitals and wither up my heart, till at last I become one with the dead that I love. My seat is the feeted hollow of an aged grave. My desk is the back of a fallen tombstone worn smooth by devastating centuries. My only light is that of the stars and a thin-edged moon yet I can see as clearly as though it were midday. Around me on every side, sepulchral sentinels guarding unkempt graves, the tilting, decrepit headstones lie half-hidden in masses of nauseous, rotting vegetation. Above the rest, silhouetted against the livid sky, an august monument lifts its austere, tapering spire like the spectral chieftain of a Lemurian horde. The air is heavy with the noxious odors of fungi and the scent of damp, moldy earth, but to me it is the aroma of Elysium, it is still, terrifyingly still, with a silence whose very profundity bespeaks the solemn and the hideous. Could I choose my habitation, it would be in the heart of some such city of putrefying flesh and crumbling bones, for their nearness sends ecstatic thrills through my soul, causing the stagnant blood to race through my veins and my torpid heart to pound with delirious joy, for the presence of death is life to me. My early childhood was one long, prosaic and monotonous apathy. Strictly ascetic, wan, pallid, undersized, and subject to protracted spells of morbid moroseness, I was ostracized by the healthy normal youngsters of my own age. They dubbed me a spoil sport, an old woman, because I had no interest in the rough, childish games they played, or any stamina to participate in them, had I so desired. Like all rural villages, Fenham had its quota of poison-tongued gossips. Their prying imaginations hailed my lethargic temperament as some abhorrent abnormality. They compared me with my parents and shook their heads in ominous doubt at the vast difference. Some of the more superstitious openly pronounced me a changeling, while others who knew something of my ancestry called attention to the vague mysterious rumours concerning a great-great-grand uncle who had been burned at the stake as a necromancer. Had I lived in some larger town, with greater opportunities for congenial companionship, Perhaps I could have overcome this early tendency to be a recluse. As I reached my teens I grew even more sullen, morbid and apathetic. My life lacked motivation. I seemed in the grip of something that dulled my senses, stunted my development, retarded my activities, and left me unaccountably dissatisfied. I was sixteen when I attended my first funeral. A funeral in Fenham was a pre-eminent social event, for our town was noted for the longevity of its inhabitants. When moreover the funeral was that of such a well-known character as my grandfather, it was safe to assume that the townspeople would turn out en masse to pay due homage to his memory. Yet I did not view the approaching ceremony with even latent interest. Anything that tended to lift me out of my habitual inertia held for me only the promise of physical and mental disquietude. In deference to my parents' importunings, mainly to give myself relief from their caustic condemnations of what they chose to call my unfilial attitude. I agreed to accompany them. There was nothing out of the ordinary about my grandfather's funeral, unless it was the voluminous array of floral tributes. But this, remember, was my initiation to the solemn rites of such an occasion. Something about the darkened room, the oblong coffin with its somber drapings, the banked masses of fragrant blooms, the dolorous manifestations of the assembled villagers, stirred me from my normal listlessness and arrested my attention. Roused from my momentary reverie by a nudge from my mother's sharp elbow, I followed her across the room to the casket where the body of my grandparent lay. For the first time I was face to face with death. I looked down upon the calm placid face lined with its multitudinous wrinkles and saw nothing to cause so much of sorrow. Instead, it seemed to me that grandfather was immeasurably content, blandly satisfied. I felt swayed by some strange discordant sense of elation. So slowly, so stealthily had it crept over me, that I could scarcely define its coming. As I mentally review that portentous hour, it seems that it must have originated with my first glimpse of that funeral scene, silently strengthening its grip with subtle insidiousness. A baleful, malignant influence that seemed to emanate from the corpse itself held me with magnetic fascination. My whole being seemed charged with some ecstatic, electrifying force, and I felt my form straighten without conscious volition. My eyes were trying to burn beneath the closed lids of the dead man's and read some secret message they concealed. My heart gave a sudden leap of unholy glee and pounded against my ribs with demoniacal force as if to free itself from the confining walls of my frail frame. Wild, wanton, soul-satisfying sensuality engulfed me. Once more the vigorous prod of a maternal elbow jarred me into activity. I had made my way to the sable-shrouded coffin with leaden tread. I walked away with newfound animation. I accompanied the cortege to the cemetery, my whole physical being permeated with this mystic enlivening influence. It was as if I had quaffed deep draughts of some exotic elixir, some abominable concoction brewed from blasphemous formulae in the archives of Belil. The townsfolk were so intent upon the ceremony that the radical change in my demeanour passed unnoticed by all save my father and my mother. But in the fortnight that followed, the village busybodies found fresh material for their vitriolic tongues in my altered bearing. At the end of the fortnight, however, the potency of the stimulus began to lose its effectiveness. Another day or two, and I had completely reverted to my old-time languor, though not to the complete and engulfing insipidity of the past. Before, there had been an utter lack of desire to emerge from the innovation; Now vague and indefinable unrest disturbed me. Outwardly I had become myself again. And the scandal mongers turned to some more engrossing subject. Had they even so much as dreamed the true cause of my exhilaration, they would have shunned me as if I were a filthy, leprous thing. Had I visioned the execrable power behind my brief period of elation, I would have locked myself forever from the rest of the world and spent my remaining years in penitent solitude. Tragedy often runs in trilogies, hence, despite the proverbial longevity of our townspeople, the next five years brought the death of both parents. My mother went first, in an accident of the most unexpected nature, and so genuine was my grief that I was honestly surprised to find its poignancy mocked and contradicted by that almost forgotten feeling of supreme and diabolical ecstasy. Once more my heart leaped wildly within me, once more it pounded at trip-hammer speed and sent the hot blood coursing through my veins with meteoric fervor. I shook from my shoulders the harassing cloak of stagnation, only to replace it with the infinitely more horrible burden of loathsome, unhallowed desire. I haunted the death chamber where the body of my mother lay, my soul athirst for the devilish nectar that seemed to saturate the air of the darkened room. Every breath strengthened me, lifted me to towering heights of seraphic satisfaction. I knew now that it was but a sort of drugged delirium which must soon pass and leave me correspondingly weakened by its malign power yet I could no more control my longing than I could untwist the Gordian knots in the already tangled skein of my destiny. I knew, too, that through some strange, satanic curse my life depended upon the dead for its motive force, that there was a singularity in my makeup which responded only to the awesome presence of some lifeless clod. A few days later, frantic for the bestial intoxicant on which the fullness of my existence depended, I interviewed Fenham's sole undertaker, and talked him into taking me on as a sort of apprentice. The shock of my mother's demise had visibly affected my father. I think that if I had broached the idea of such outray employment at any other time, he would have been emphatic in his refusal. As it was, he nodded acquiescence after a moment's sober thought. How little did I dream that he would be the object of my first practical lesson. He, too, died suddenly, developing some hitherto unsuspected heart affliction. My octogenarian employer tried his best to dissuade me from the unthinkable task of embalming his body, nor did he detect the rapturous glint in my eyes as I finally won him over to my damnable point of view. I cannot hope to express the reprehensible, the unutterable thoughts that swept in tumultuous waves of passion through my racing heart as I laboured over the lifeless clay. Unsurpassed love was the keynote of these concepts, a love greater, far greater, than any I had ever borne him while he was alive. My father was not a rich man but he had possessed enough of worldly goods to make him comfortably independent As his sole heir I found myself in rather a paradoxical position My early youth had totally failed to fit me for contact with the modern world yet the primitive life of Fenham with its attendant isolation pulled upon me Indeed the longevity of the inhabitants defeated my sole motive in arranging my indenture After settling the estate it proved an easy matter to secure my release and I headed for Bayborough, a city some fifty miles away. Here my year of apprenticeship stood me in good stead. I had no trouble in establishing a favourable connection as an assistant with the Gresham Corporation, a concern that maintained the largest funeral parlours in the city. I even prevailed upon them to let me sleep upon the premises, for already the proximity of the dead was becoming an obsession. I applied myself to my task with unwanted zeal. No case was too gruesome for my impious sensibilities, and I soon became master at my chosen vocation. Every fresh corpse brought into the establishment meant a fulfilled promise of ungodly gladness, of irreverent gratification, a return of that rapturous tumult of the arteries which transformed my grisly task into one of beloved devotion. Yet every carnal satiation exacted its toll. I came to dread the days that brought no dead for me to gloat over, and prayed to all the obscene gods of the nethermost abysses to bring swift, sure death upon the residents of the city. Then came the nights when a skulking figure stole surreptitiously through the shadowy streets of the suburbs, pitch-dark nights when the midnight moon was obscured by heavy lowering clouds. It was a furtive figure that blended with the trees and cast fugitive glances over its shoulder, a figure bent on some malignant mission. After one of these prowlings the morning papers would scream to their sensation mad clientele the details of some nightmare crime, column on column of lurid gloating over abominable atrocities, paragraph on paragraph of impossible solutions and extravagant, conflicting suspicions. Through it all I felt a supreme sense of security, for who would for a moment suspect an employee in an undertaking establishment, where death was supposedly an everyday affair, of seeking surcease from unnameable urgings in the cold-blooded slaughter of his fellow beings. I planned each crime with maniacal cunning, varying the manner of my murders, so that no one would even dream that all were the work of one blood-stained pair of hands. The aftermath of each nocturnal venture was an ecstatic hour of pleasure, pernicious and unalloyed, a pleasure always heightened by the chance that its delicious source might later be assigned to my gloating administrations in the course of my regular occupation. Sometimes that double and ultimate pleasure did occur, oh rare and delicious memory. During long nights when I clung to the shelter of my sanctuary, I was prompted by the mausolean silence to devise new and unspeakable ways of lavishing my affections upon the dead that I loved, the dead that gave me life. One morning, Mr. Gresham came much earlier than usual, came to find me stretched out upon a cold slab deep in ghoulish slumber, my arms wrapped about the stark, stiff, naked body of a fetid corpse. He roused me from my salacious dreams, his eyes filled with mingled detestation and pity. Gently but firmly he told me that I must go, that my nerves were unstrung, that I needed a long rest from the repellent tasks my vocation required, that my impressionable youth was too deeply affected by the dismal atmosphere of my environment. How little did he know of the demoniacal desires that spurred me on in my disgusting infirmities. I was wise enough to see that argument would only strengthen his belief in my potential madness. It was far better to leave than to invite discovery of the motive underlying my actions. After this I dared not stay long in one place for fear some overt act would bear my secret to an unsympathetic world. I drifted from city to city, from town to town. I worked in morgues around cemeteries, once in a crematory, anywhere that afforded me an opportunity to be near the dead that I so craved. Then came the world war. I was one of the first to go across, one of the last to return. Four years of blood-red charnel hell. Sickening slime of rain-rotten trenches. Deafening bursting of hysterical shells. Monotonous droning of sardonic bullets. Smoking frenzies of Phlegethon's fountains. Stifling fumes of murderous gases. Grotesque remnants of smashed and shredded bodies. Four years of transcendent satisfaction. In every wanderer, there is a latent urge to return to the scenes of his childhood. A few months later found me making my way through the familiar byways of Fenham. Vacant, dilapidated farmhouses lined the adjacent roadsides, while the years had brought equal retrogression to the town itself. A mere handful of the houses were occupied, but among these was the one I had once called home. The tangled, weed-choked driveway, the broken window panes, the uncared-for acres that stretched behind— All bore mute confirmation of the tales that guarded inquiries had elicited, that it now sheltered a dissolute drunkard who eked out a meagre existence from the chores his few neighbours gave him out of sympathy for the mistreated wife and undernourished child who shared his lot. All in all, the glamour surrounding my youthful environment was entirely dispelled, so, prompted by some errant foolhardy thought, I next turned my steps toward Bayborough. Here too the years had brought changes, but in reverse order. The small city I remembered had almost doubled in size despite its wartime depopulation. Instinctively, I sought my former place of employment, finding it still there, but with an unfamiliar name and successor too above the door, for the influenza epidemic had claimed Mr. Gresham, while the boys were overseas. Some fateful mood impelled me to ask for work. I referred to my tutelage under Mr. Gresham with some trepidation, but my fears were groundless. My late employer had carried the secret of my unethical conduct with him to the grave. An opportune vacancy ensured my immediate reinstallation. Then came vagrant haunting memories of scarlet nights of impious pilgrimages and an uncontrollable desire to renew those illicit joys. I cast caution to the winds and launched upon another series of damnable debaucheries. Once more the yellow sheets found welcome material in the devilish details of my crimes comparing them to the red weeks of horror that had appalled the city years before. Once more the police sent out their dragnet and drew into its enmeshing folds nothing. My thirst for the noxious nectar of the dead grew to a consuming fire, and I began to shorten the periods between my odious exploits. I realized that I was treading on dangerous ground, but daemoniac desire gripped me in its torturing tentacles and urged me on. All this time my mind was becoming more and more benumbed to any influence except the satiation of my insane longings. Little details vitally important to one bent on such evil escapades escaped me. Somehow, somewhere, I left a vague trace, an elusive clue behind, not enough to warrant my arrest, but sufficient to turn the tide of suspicion in my direction. I sensed this espionage, yet was helpless to stem the surging demand for more dead to quicken my enervated soul. Then came the night when the shrill whistle of the police roused me from my fiendish gloating over the body of my latest victim, a gory razor still clutched tightly in my hand. With one dexterous motion I closed the blade and thrust it into the pocket of the coat I wore. Nightsticks beat a lusty tattoo upon the door. I crashed the window with a chair, thanking fate I had chosen one of the cheaper tenement districts for my locale. I dropped into a dingy alley as blue-coated forms burst through the shattered door over shaky fences, through filthy backyards, past squalid ramshackle houses, down dimly lighted narrow streets I fled. I thought at once of the wooded marshes that lay beyond the city and stretched for half a hundred miles till they touched the outskirts of Fenham. If I could reach this goal I would be temporarily safe. Before dawn I was plunging headlong through the foreboding wasteland, stumbling over the rotting roots of half-dead trees whose naked branches stretched out like grotesque arms striving to encumber me with mocking embraces. The imps of the nefarious gods to whom I offered my idolatrous prayers must have guided my footsteps through that menacing morass. A week later, wan, bedraggled and emaciated, I lurked in the woods a mile from Fenham. So far I had eluded my pursuers, yet I dared not show myself, for I knew that the alarm must have been sent broadcast. I vaguely hoped I had thrown them off the trail. After that first frenetic night I had heard no sound of alien voices, no crashing of heavy bodies through the underbrush. Perhaps they had concluded that my body lay hidden in some stagnant pool, or had vanished forever in the tenacious quagmire. Hunger gnawed at my vitals with poignant pangs, thirst left my throat parched and dry. Yet far worse was the unbearable hunger of my starving soul for the stimulus I found only in the nearness of the dead. My nostrils quivered in sweet recollection. No longer could I delude myself with the thought that this desire was a mere whim of the heated imagination. I knew now that it was an integral part of life itself, that without it I should burn out like an empty lamp. I summoned all my remaining energy to fit me for the task of satisfying my accursed appetite. Despite the peril attending my move I set out to reconnoiter, skirting the sheltering shadows like an obscene wraith. Once more I felt that strange sensation of being led by some unseen satellite of Satan. Yet even my sin-steeped soul revolted for a moment when I found myself before my native abode, the scene of my youthful hermitage. Then these disquieting memories faded. In their place came overwhelming lustful desire. Behind the rotting walls of this old house lay my prey. A moment later I had raised one of the shattered windows and climbed over the sill. I listened for a moment, every sense alert, every muscle tensed for action. The silence reassured me. With cat-like tread, I stole through the familiar rooms until stertorous snores indicated the place where I was to find surcease from my sufferings. I allowed myself a sigh of anticipatory ecstasy as I pushed open the door of the bedchamber. Panther-like I made my way to the supine forms stretched out in drunken stupor. The wife and child, where were they? Well, they could wait. My clutching fingers groped for his throat. Hours later, I was again the fugitive, but a newfound stolen strength was mine. Three silent forms slept awake no more. It was not until the garish light of day penetrated my hiding place that I visualized the certain consequences of my rashly purchased relief. By this time, the bodies must have been discovered. Even the most obtuse of the rural police must surely link the tragedy with my flight from the nearby city. Besides, for the first time I had been careless enough to leave some tangible proof of my identity, my fingerprints on the throats of the newly dead. All day I shivered in nervous apprehension. The mere crackling of a dry twig beneath my feet conjured mental images that appalled me. That night, under cover of the protecting darkness I skirted phenom and made for the woods that lay beyond. Before dawn came the first definite hint of renewed pursuit, the distant baying of hounds. Through the long night I pressed on, but by morning I could feel my artificial strength ebbing. Noon brought once more the insistent call of the contaminating curse, and I knew I must fall by the way unless I could once more experience that exotic intoxication that came only with the proximity of the loved dead. I had traveled in a wide semicircle. If I pushed steadily ahead, midnight would bring me to the cemetery where I had laid away my parents years before. My only hope, I felt certain lay in reaching this goal before I was overtaken. With a silent prayer to the devils that dominated my destiny, I turned leaden feet in the direction of my last stronghold. God, can it be that a scant twelve hours have passed since I started for my ghostly sanctuary? I have lived an eternity in each leaden hour, but I have reached a rich reward. The noxious odors of this neglected spot are frankincense to my suffering soul. The first streaks of dawn are graying the horizon. They are coming. My sharp ears catch the far-off howling of the dogs. It is but a matter of minutes before they find me, and shut me away forever from the rest of the world, to spend my days in ravaging yearnings till at last I join the dead I love. They shall not take me. A way of escape is open. A coward's choice, perhaps, but better, far better, than endless months of nameless misery. I will leave this record behind me that some soul may perhaps understand why I make this choice. The razor. It has nestled forgotten in my pocket since my flight from Bayborough. Its blood-stained blade gleams oddly in the waning light of the thin-edged moon. One slashing stroke across my left wrist and deliverance is assured. Warm, fresh blood spatters grotesque patterns on dingy, decrepit slabs. Phantasmal hordes swarm over the rotting graves. Spectral fingers beckon me. Ethereal fragments of unwritten melodies rise in celestial crescendo. Distant stars dance drunkenly in demoniac accompaniment. A thousand tiny hammers beat hideous dissonances on anvils inside my chaotic brain. Gray ghosts of slaughtered spirits parade in mocking silence before me. Scorching tongues of invisible flame sear the brand of hell upon my sickened soul. I can write no more.